Welcome to the Doing Useful Things podcast, where I interview people in Austria and Europe who are making a mark in their industry. I'm Dave Keeler. Today I'm talking with Dr. Alan Hanberry, Professor of Data Intelligence at the Vienna Technical University. Alan introduces us to three unique technologies. The first is the visual history of the Holocaust. This is an amazing collection of digitized historical accounts of the Holocaust. The goal is to make the information more findable by creating links between films, photos, and documents located around the globe. This gives users a more fulsome historical experience. The second project is the TRIP database, a search engine for medical researchers. The goal of this project is to make it faster to get an overview of disease interventions and how effective the interventions were based on published medical articles. Check it out at tripdatabase.com. The third technology Alan introduces us to is a product by a company called Context Flow. Their tool allows radiologists to search archived 3D radiological images. This cutting-edge technology helps radiologists better assess their patients' images by comparing them to historical images and assessments. Here we go. Dr. Hanberry is focused on multiple projects right now, but we're going to talk about three today. The first of which is the visual history of the Holocaust. You want to go ahead and tell us about that? Sure. So this is a very large project that is multidisciplinary. So we're working with historians, film historians, and computer scientists to analyze the huge amount of information that is out there about the Holocaust, but that is currently not yet linked together. So this information is in the form of photographs that have been taken during and after the war, um, also films, documents that have been written, scientific papers, and this information is spread all over the world, so in Europe, in Russia, in the US, in various archives, and currently it's being digitized. But just digitizing, it doesn't make it easily findable. So what we are doing in the visual history of the Holocaust is trying to make all of this information more easily findable by automatically creating links between the different types, so links between films and photographs or between films and documents. How do you find the data that's out there? So this is what the historians do. So they do an amazing job of traveling around the world and dealing with various approaches to getting the information. And they basically get the information and uh, then also get it digitized. So as I mentioned, this information is in multiple places. Some of it is in uh, the US National Archive, some of it is in archives in, in Russia, um, and in various archives around Europe. All of the archives, and even where some of it is in uh, owned privately, mm -hmm. so um, all of these have different ways of accessing or the, the data. And um, so they have to usually physically travel there and um, organize to, to get access to the data. These research scientists, sleuths, or private eyes, whatever you want to call them, the, they're going out there getting the information, they're all part of the project. Yeah. Is there a call for information, meaning that is there a place that if someone hears this and say, oh, you know, I've actually got some photographs of my grandfather, 
I can donate? Is there a place they can contact to donate this? Yeah, so there are a number of museums also involved in the project. So um, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum is involved, also in Germany and in Austria, um, the various uh, concentration camp memorial uh, museums um, like Mauthausen in Austria. So I believe that they have already programs in place so that you can contact them and uh, provide the information. So if anybody listening to this then can look up the U.S. Holocaust Museum or one of the many other Holocaust memorial sites, yeah. and all those organizations will be familiar with this particular project, and they can donate digitized images or whatever you're looking for. Yeah. Okay, cool. The people that are digitizing it, these are the same people that are going out and getting the information. Is that correct? Partly. So what the historians and film historians do is identify the information which is most interesting, in particular for their research questions. And many of the archives or organizations already have a digitization program in place. So then they will change the priority of the digitization so that the more important informa information gets digitized first. And um, then that gets made available to the project for us to analyze. And once the information is digitized, is it, uh, are there labels, references? You know, what are they, are they using the metadata? How are they adding to it to make it more useful data as opposed to just a video of, say, a, you know, a concentration camp? Yeah, this depends very much on the organization that provides the data. So I think different organizations have different standards of metadata, but um, it also depends on, um, in particular, some uh, data itself uh, has different levels of, uh, of metadata. So it all depends on where it comes from and what they know about its origin. So one of the aims of the project is to try and automatically apply the metadata. So given a film, we are developing algorithms that should automatically recognize objects or potentially even locations in the film. And then we can use that to link, for example, to documents or to photographs that were taken in the same location. Okay, so you're saying if there's a photograph, a particular area that people are familiar with, let's say it's a clock tower or something like that, and then the application can say, okay, that's the clock tower from this particular area. I know that was the ghetto and wherever it may be. And then, boom, it, that's, it, it, it tags that so that when there's further research done, it, the user then can reference that particular image or that film based upon the location if they're interested in something that happened in that location. Exactly. So that is our objective in the project. So it's a four-year project, and we've now had the first six months. So we're getting to know the data. But this is a use case that we have in the project to, to make this possible. Can you explain what type of metadata would already be with a film? Is there something? So if you're if someone was to pick up a again a a real it's going to be a real real film right from that time period, is there a certain data you can pick up off that uh, that's not just the video? Well, the the film itself, of course, not being digital, will not have metadata associated with it. Potentially, there will be a label on the box 
Mm-hmm. And it depends on old school metadata. Yeah, yeah. It depends on the the organization or where the data came from as to how detailed this this label is going to be. Um, sometimes there are also index cards associated with the photographs or the films, mm-hmm. but I also know of at least one case where the photographs exist and they know that the index cards exist, but they were separated at some stage. And nobody knows where the index cards are today. They're somewhere in the basement of some archive. So even if the wow. metadata has been made, often it is not connected anymore with the, with the information. So then I imagine it's a historian's job at that point to go through, perhaps watch that film and say, okay, now, and maybe do some sleuthing to, under, to figure out where that is, what's happening, maybe even who some of the people are. Uh, exactly. Did, I've visited several concentration camps, and oftentimes they have uh, very meticulous lists of who went through there and who is, you know, all the uh, the prisoners. And is there a way to basically reference their names and faces? So, I mean, it seems like a very detailed record-keeping system. I remember, I think it was in Auschwitz. You know, they have pictures of all the people who went through and their names and um, you know, how long they were there, generally only a few weeks. Uh does the project, is it also looking at that as taking the, the individual's pictures? No, we will not be looking at the, the individual pictures. So it's more on the level of uh, events and locations and what happened there at what time. So how do you envision the ultimate user of this, using this technology? So we've defined a number of, of users. Um, on the one hand, it would be visitors to the museums. So we're envisioning a quite simple interface that allows these visitors to browse the information and look at various links between the information. But then another user is um, the historian. So they were also imagining a more comprehensive interface with multiple monitors where the historian may decide to watch a film and for every scene in the film get various suggestions as to which information might be linked to this particular scene. So because many of these links are created automatically, um, I imagine that not all of them will be correct and then it will also be up to the historian to say, okay, well, this link is very interesting but unfortunately it's wrong and indicate that so that it will be removed. So. We're not trying to replace historians or film historians in any way. We are trying to give them a tool to be able to go through more information uh, in less time. So let's say they find something that they believe is incorrect. I assume they cannot change it right then and there. They submit it to your organization for correction? Exactly how we're going to do that is still part of, okay. of the project, right. but uh, there will definitely be a possibility to, to suggest corrections. Will this be available to the general public, say, on a website at some point? Yes, that is planned. But give me an idea of how you envision someone using it in the sense of, you know, would they be looking through some photographs and they click on that and then it brings up movies where those particular images also were found? Or, or give me an example of how you think it might work. Well, we could also connect it together with mobile devices, Mm-hmm. so that they carry this device with them as they walk through the, the camp. 
And given the location where they're standing, the device could suggest to them various uh, films or photos or documents that correspond to this exact location. So um, potentially even look at a photo of how this particular place looked in 1945, for example. That would be uh, surreal, right? That would be, I don't know, that's... uh, uh, Visiting some of these places is uh, a, a moving experience already. I can't imagine if you're you know, able to use maybe augmented reality even or something like that to, to see what was right where you were standing. Wow. Yeah. So augmented reality is, again, beyond what uh, we plan in the project, but at least to be able to look at the, the images on a tablet, for example, is... Uh, the step that we're we're aiming at yeah of course beyond that yeah augmented reality would be would be great right wow that's great and that will be out in 2023 22 around about there yeah okay excellent it's a really great example of how we're using uh data um data science and taking things that already exist right these are all archive photos these are old family videos you know something a soldier may have taken anything and is it just is it just video that you're looking at right now? No, we're looking at video, uh, photography, also recordings of survivors of the Holocaust. Audio re- recordings? Audio or? recordings that okay. then run through a speech-to-text so that we also analyze the text. And um, also the scientific publications that have been written based on the various material. Okay, so it's... Basically, visual from the the movie and photography standpoint, audio from recordings of people, and then the written word research. Basically, everything you can find about the Holocaust yeah. and combine it into one, you know, Google slash Wikipedia slash some other more useful tool type of uh, application. Mm. Very cool. That's very cool. Like I said, it's a it's a very um, interesting example of the use of data science to, um, in this case you know, make us smarter on something that happened a long time ago so that uh, it doesn't happen again. Exactly. The next project that you're working on, or one of the many projects, but I found this one quite interesting. Well, I'll let you talk about it, the TRIP database. Yeah. Okay, so this was a, a project that we did together with a very innovative company in the UK called the TRIP database. So the TRIP database basically is a search engine for medical researchers, So they index a large amount of the medical articles that have been published and make them easier to find. And for this project, we were thinking about how we can go beyond just a standard search engine with a search box and a list of results. And we came up with the idea of trying to make it faster to get an overview of the different interventions than, that can be used for a disease mm-hmm. and how good these interventions are. Mm-hmm. So currently this is done manually. So there are researchers that test interventions for diseases in clinical trials and they then publish the clinical trials in scientific journals or medical journals. And the next step is that 
in order to get a better idea of how good an intervention for a disease is, people will do what is called a meta-review, which means they collect all of the articles that have been published about a certain disease and a certain intervention and use some statistics to combine the results. Because if you combine results from even a larger number of, of people that, on the, which this intervention has been tried, you can get a better idea of how effective it is. So the problem with this, so this is all done very carefully and uh, with very rigorous statistical approaches, it takes over a year in general to create this meta-review of the uh, clinical trials for a disease and intervention combination. And we thought, well, what if we could do that in a second? And then we started looking at what is possible. And so together with the TRIP database, we were developing algorithms to automatically extract the diseases, interventions, and how well they, they work from the published clinical trials and to then automatically integrate these into a visualization so that in less than a second there is a visualization that you can interact with to get an idea of how good the intervention is for a given disease. I'm going to use the example of dementia. To apply that to your explanation is you have uh, let's say 100 researchers out there researching particular medical in interventions for dementia. And uh, they come up with um, uh, a particular drug, right? So, and then they publish an article on, uh, let's say, medication A that is effective or not effective, whatever it may be, against dementia. And then you have another group of researchers who are looking at all those, all of the research done on dementia. And with that particular drug or all the research done on dementia? Generally, it's done for dementia and a particular interventional drug. Okay. And so now they're taking yeah. all the research done on, it's all similar type research, right? Yeah. It's all similar research just done. So, by so it's all similar groups. research where they take a group of people and give, let's say, part with dementia, and part of these people they give the drug to, the other part uh, they give a placebo to, and then they compare how well the drug works compared to a placebo, where placebo is usually a sugar pill. They're aggregating all the individual research that was done. Yeah. And then based upon that, testing the, the quality of the research, the you know, the rigor that was applied to the research, then they do an assessment. Okay, is the results of those initial research, what's the aggregated result? And they come up with, okay, a particular drug does or does not work, it's 80% effective, whatever the results are. And what your product does is basically do that with an algorithm. Yes. And, okay. By going through and taking, all, taking out the data, I think you'd said from the abstract, because yes. the, 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 yeah, from the title and the abstract. The title and the abstract, which basically summarizes the research. Yes. And then puts that onto algorithm. And at the end, it'll say, yeah, medication B for dementia 
is a percentage effective or, or some sort of ranking effective. Exactly. And again, so we are not trying to put the people who do the, the systematic reviews out of business because the results that we get, because they're done completely automatically, are not perfect. But for a case where a systematic review doesn't exist or is still being done, this can already give an indication um, to somebody how effective various medications are. And because it's possible to interact with the, the results, with the visualization, it's possible to see and to check how trustworthy this result is. So I'm pulling up the uh, www.tripdatabase.com and uh, this is where you can enter the, the disease and um, get some information on it. And then, so in the search box, I enter dementia and I'm clicking on evidence maps on the top menu bar. So when we pulled up, we have a, what do you call this? A, not a bubble chart. Or I don't know if we call it anything. It's, okay. uh, it's a result visualization. A result visualization. So what it is, is a chart with uh, uh, basically bubbles that represent the, um, the type of treatment, the type of intervention, and, um, the, and how, how likely they are to be effective. So it's kind of interesting. So if you look at uh, de dementia, which I put in, something near the top uh, are antidepressants and massage, which is, and what's across the top axis? What does that represent? Currently, it's uh, alphabetical order for the, um, for the interventions. Okay, so essentially, the, the more important one is this, the vertical axis, which shows the, effect, the likely effectiveness of it. Yeah. So if you scroll down a little bit, then it comes into specific drugs. I think this is going to make people even more or thinking that they are more like doctors because it used to be they just Google their symptoms and they come up with what they believe is true. Now they have science, more science behind it where they can say, okay, I've got a particular ailment. Or I think I have an ailment. What should my doctor be giving me? So it's really interesting. And uh, I think you can, you can put it in for pretty much any ailment right any type of disease and yeah so this is the first prototype that we created of this so we still need to evaluate how good the results are so we will then um, this is planned for the next years compare our let's say quick and dirty results together with the systematic reviews that have been done more rigorously and see how well they correspond and then we will also work on improving the information extraction algorithms to ensure that they, they correspond better. And so you anticipate the end users of this being whom? So the end users will uh, very likely be medical researchers, but it's also a, a way to get a rapid overview of which um, papers have been published for diseases on which interventions. Mm -hmm. So it could also be interesting for research funders or for policymakers to get an overview of what exists in terms of a different disease for research on interventions and then find out where some research still needs to be done and make a decision to fund that. Okay, so interesting. 
again, using dementia as a, an example, you can see how much research has been done on a particular intervention, a particular drug, right? And maybe it's just a very small amount. Yeah. And so then based upon, is it based upon the bubble size? So the, the, the bubble size is an indication of the number of people that um, all of the papers have done the experiment on. So oh, okay. you basically so add together all the, all, the, all the test subjects from all the papers. Okay. So larger would be a more rigorous uh, test subject pool. And then, okay, so with dementia, you can see what has come up through you know, any, all the research available on a particular drug, how likely that drug is to be effective, and uh, then the number the research has been on it. So if you, I imagine if you had a drug that ranked quite high in effectiveness, yet the bubble was very small, meaning they had, done very, had very few test subjects, that might be a place where you'd want to spend some money and say, hey, we need to take another look at this because this might be a cure or something that can help. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And, and is this something, it's obviously available right now uh, to consumers, but once it's, is it, it's still in the works, right? You're still... So it, it, it's still in the works. It's currently available to consumers. So everybody is welcome to try it out on the tripdatabase.com, click on evidence maps. And the, the person who runs the trip database is always very happy to get feedback on this. So if you see something that is obviously not working, please write an email to him and inform him about that. And we will also be using um, this, this feedback in future research. So we have a new project starting now um, that has the aim of improving exactly this product. So back to my dementia example. So what I'm looking here is that this evidence map is it says automated review for dementia based on 698 articles and the top 56 interventions. If this is something you wanted to research, it seems like your first stop would be Trip Database, and you can basically at a glance you get the evidence from 698 articles and the top in this case uh, 56 interventions. So. You know, this is where it might be where you start your research on a disease or an ailment or something, and you can individually go through and look at research and look at particular drugs, and maybe it's a drug that uh, that your doctor has already prescribed to, to somebody you knows, dementia, whatever it may be. Uh, but it definitely, I think, a much better starting place than just Googling the illness because, of course, you have to wade through all the, probably the, the paid endorsements of first. Exactly. So the, the advantage of the TRIP database is it is very strictly controlled which sources of information are indexed and made available. So it is only the particularly scientifically rigorous uh, papers that are uh, given as search results and form the basis for this analysis on the TRIP database. Has this been featured in any, uh, any scientific journals or has it been written up or in other publications? It's been written up for a scientific journal and mm -hmm. it's currently under review. Okay. I'm just curious about like other medical uh, websites, WebMD, things like that. Do they, or maybe this would not be something they'd want to link to. I don't know. Yeah, WebMD has a, a different target audience. So okay, yeah. the, the TRIP database is very much focused at uh, medical researchers right. and physicians. Right. Okay. Medical researchers and physicians and someone who would want to get really down into the detail of a particular disease. And the final completion date, you think, is when? Again, it's something that's 
it's difficult to know if it will ever be finished. Um, but as I mentioned, we have a new project that is starting towards the end of this year. And then we will continuously be trying new things out and making them available on the website so that we can uh, get feedback from end users and improve the results. Okay. So we'll tell our doctor friends to go to tripdatabase.com and, uh, and check it out. Yeah. Very good. Yet another great example of aggregating data and you know, using the existing data that's out there. Um, as uh, Alan said, they're you know, pulling the data from existing articles and research papers and then using that in a, in a smart way. The third project we're going to talk about is, um, I'll let you talk about it, regarding the uh, radiologist uh, tool, for lack of a better term. Yeah, so, so this is also in the medical domain. It is very related to the, the TRIP database example in that we're taking existing information and searching through it in order to assist, in this case, radiologists. So this is a company um, that is doing this called ContextFlow. It's a spin-off of um, an, a project funded by the European Commission and of the Medical University and the Technical University of Vienna. And what ContextFlow is doing is to build a search engine to assist radiologists in um, their diagnosis. So it takes advantage of the huge amounts of information that are recorded and stored in terms of the uh, CT and MR images, so computer tomography and magnetic re resonance images. And currently these are acquired. A radiologist does an analysis of the image. This information is passed on to the patient and to other treating physicians. And the information, the image and the radiologist report is generally stored in an archive and never looked at again. So what, and there, there is a huge amount of really useful information there because there are diagnoses, analyses of the images stored there. So ContextFlow makes all of this searchable. And so the first step, of course, is the anonymization of the images. So we're not interested in identifying the people, but the actual diseases. And once the images are anonymized, it's then possible to use the context flow technology to index the images, to make them findable. So what this means for a radiologist is that the radiologist, and this does happen in some cases, in particular for radiologists in training, that they're looking at a CT image of the lung, for example, and they see some pattern there that they're not so familiar with. So currently, it's not so straightforward to find out what it is. They may ask a colleague, they may look in books, uh, they may look on an online search engine. This is very inefficient and takes maybe up to 20 minutes. But with the context flow approach, the radiologist basically 
draws a box around the part of the image that looks unusual. And the context flow system very rapidly, so in less than a second, will return from uh, its store of images those images which contain similar patterns. Mm. And then based on the existing diagnoses for those images, the context flow system can make suggestions as to which uh, diagnoses could fit to this image. And it also brings back further information from uh, medical publishers or from uh, Radiopedia, for example. So it's sort of like Wikipedia for radiologists that describes the various uh, diagnoses that it has suggested so that the radiologists have all of the information that they need to be able to make a well-informed decision. And I think you had said earlier that these are 3D images that you're talking about, and it's, yes. it's just 3D from CAT scans and MRIs and whatever else makes a 3D yeah. uh, or CT scan. CT, yeah. CT scan that makes a, a 3D image. Because I think you said earlier that the 2D images, that work has been done in the sense of you can use that. And your example that you gave earlier was uh, dermatology, where a dermatologist can photograph something on the skin, 2D, and, and, have a, and it can do a picture reference, I guess, or a picture lookup and determine, okay, this, it could be this, could be that, whatever the element may be. And so what this provides, just so I understand it, tell me if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, as you mentioned, say a trainee, someone who's not so experienced, it gives them a starting point. It gives them a starting point, so okay, it could be this, and then they can uh, dig deeper into uh, what the particular identifier, whatever you may call it on, a, on, a, on an X-ray or a, um, a CT scan is. And then it also gives a uh, maybe more advanced radiologist a second check, right? Exactly. So we imagine that more experienced radiologists will not have to use this as often, but it's often very useful to get exactly that, to get a sort of second opinion if they're on the right track. Well, I guess what's useful is when that more experienced radiologist, when they, they do their assessment and they give their findings, and then that gets, that gets shipped off to the hospital, whatever it may be, then at some point you guys access that, again, anonymize it, so you're constantly pulling in the data. And is there, is there a central place that has access to this, or do you have to go to individual hospitals and, and the like? So we, we go to individual hospitals, and um, there we have already uh, agreements with various hospitals and anonymization procedures in place so that uh, we can get the anonymized data. So there's no reason that a hospital would not be part of this, right? Once you contacted them, I imagine the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing it's the information stays at the hospitals because of privacy concerns. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And so you go to the individual hospital, you anonymize it. And so there's probably some legwork involved collecting this data. Because obviously the more you have, the more robust the system will be and the more yes. accurate it will be. If a radiologist does an assessment on something, and then they file it away, as you had said, but they're wrong. Later on, they're proven wrong. Do they go back and correct that, or does that incorrect assessment stay with the record? I think that depends on 
the hospital. So it is possible that there are incorrect assessments with some of the images, but we also have a uh, an annotation pipeline in place where we have experienced radiologists looking at the uh, um, diagnoses that are associated with the images and correcting that if necessary. If you, is there a way to put a number on how big your database is right now on the number of records you're drawing from? So currently we are focusing on lung CTs mm -hmm. and we have a few thousand lung CTs that are in our database that are indexed and that can be returned as search results. Are you in an active process of going out and gathering more data? Is there someone who has to basically pick up the phone, call hospitals, convince them to share the data and why this data will be beneficial to them? Yes. Is there a fee to the hospitals or is there a fee to use this particular service? Um, will there be? Well, it, it, it's a um, commercial product. Business, so yeah. we already have it integrated into uh, three packs. So the packs are the picture archiving and communication systems. So those are the systems that the radiologists currently use to view the images. So essentially, once we have this integrated, it's just an additional button on the, the pack screen, which allows the radiologist to basically say, okay, second opinion. And then it returns the, uh, the, the suggested diagnosis and the uh, related information. So what's the feedback so far from radiologists? So the feedback we've had so far has been very positive. Um, it's good because we are definitely not trying to replace any radiologists. We are trying to make it easier for them to uh, carry out their, their work in that they have this, let's say, computer assistant that can make suggestions to them so it's not it's not ai in the sense of like you said not replacing uh radiologists it's a tool for them to get better or to maybe even faster yeah so definitely faster and again it, there's a big discussion about what exactly is artificial intelligence right. okay i won't go down that path. um so this we could discuss yes. for the next half an hour but um we could call it something like um, enhanced intelligence. Got so it. you have the intelligence <laughs> of the radiologist, and there is the machine that provides additional information, exactly that information that the radiologist needs yeah. at that point. Is it commercially available now, or are people actually, is it still in a research phase or, or test phase, or are there hospitals using this? as a tool at the moment? So we currently have it as a product and we have a number of proof of concepts running with large uh, university hospitals where the system is installed there and we're also running trials with the radiologists to measure how well the system functions. Uh, are these Austrian hospitals? Um, European. So. Okay. In Austria, Spain, 
Netherlands. Yeah. So if it's it's constantly learning, right? It's going to be constantly learning uh, as it's being fed more information from radiologists and it, it gets smarter. One could call that artificial intelligence to a degree. But again, I won't go down that path. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, we're not trying to replace uh, radiologists, but uh, certainly I can see how people would get the idea, hmm, well, someday the computer can do it because it's, you know, I'm not a radiologist, so I'm obviously not going to simplify it that way, but I could see how someone could say, well, you know, there's only so many things that can happen to the lungs, right? There's only so many spots, there's only so many things, and at some point, if you get enough data, you're probably going to be able to nail it because isn't that what a radiologist is doing anyways is based upon their own experience you know that's what's in their head they're saying okay this is what i think this is and so at some point the computer's probably going to be able to do that i don't know when but but still it, it it's complex because one of the problems are that there are very often many diseases that occur together mm, so yeah. it's possible to recognize one disease but then if you have two that are interacting, mm -hmm. then things start getting complex again. Yeah, I see. And if you're trying to do this all automatically, it just, uh, currently, it, it, it's, not, it's not feasible. So we still need the, what the humans are good at, which is basically taking large amounts of information and making sense out of it. And judgment. And making a judgment, yeah. making a diagnosis. And... Um, the computers are not going to be able to, or the artificial intelligences are not going to be able to do that in the next 10 years. Yeah. No, I, I, I see your point. Just as far as technically how it works. So you said you're right now you're focused on the lungs. So would you look at a large picture, like say of an entire lung? So then it has, so then the system has an idea of where on the lung it is. And then is it a series of closer and closer and closer? So then it gets a, you know, a better idea of what, let's say it's some sort of growth and what the growth looks like, where it's located. You know, is it, does it have nodules? Is it smooth? Whatever it may be. I'm just curious if, uh, from my own knowledge, how it maps it in the sense of, does it take many, many, many pictures so it finds out where exactly it is and then, and then it takes a more micro level uh, ex examination of it. Yeah, so the, the CT image of a lung is made up of a lot of slices. So that's, if you watch radiologists work, then they scroll through these slices. Mm -hmm. And on some of the slices, you would see uh, this unusual pattern, a nodule, for example. And it's possible to, once the radiologist has selected a, re a region, we can map it pretty well to a position in the lung. Because we... So the radiologist actually selects it's in your upper left quadrant of whatever. Okay. No, the, the radiologist basically selects an area, but we know what the radiologist is looking at. Okay, so We gotcha. know what part of the lung. So okay. the, uh, the system will then map it to the region of the lung that that is in. Okay. And once we expand to, to the rest of the body, then, of course, that's also important. So mm -hmm. we need to know that we're not suggesting something, some lung disease for... Uh, something that's taken somewhere else in the leg, for example. Right, yeah. And so we, we do have technology that allows the position of the selected region to be localized. Okay. Uh, where can people find out about this? Is there something online? Is there a website that they can go to? If they yeah, want to there, there's a website, so contextflow.com. Mm -hmm. And um, 
there you can get further information. Contextflow.com. A third example of using you know, data science to look at existing data. Stuff, information already exists, and also in this case, you're you're aggregating more data as the as you get more from uh, the radiologist to basically create a tool that's going to help make them faster, more efficient, and better at their job, and that's diagnosing ailments, illnesses, whatever it may be. Uh, very cool. So that's it. Uh, contextflow.com. So that was. Uh, about 45 minutes and just talking about three different applications of using data in a very smart way. And this is historical data. And as we've talked in other shows, there is with all the data that still exists out there and people are still putting it all together and finding smart ways to use it. Uh, Alan, thank you very much for coming today. And thank uh, you. hope to talk to you soon.